You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 106 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is Danielle Boyelli. And Danielle is an author, martial artist, university professor and podcaster. He's the author of several books, including On the Warrior's Path. And he's also the man behind one of the world's biggest philosophy podcasts, The Drunken Taoist. And we'll be talking about a lot of various things from serial killers to God to the afterlife, Taoism, martial arts. And we even get into a bit about the Italian painter Caravaggio. So let's get started. So thanks for being on the podcast. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. So can you tell the listeners uh, who you are and, and what you do? I do a lot of different things. So let's see. I I teach college. I've been uh, teaching in various universities in Southern California for the last 15 years. I have a couple of podcasts, one called Drunken Taoist. That's more of a philosophically oriented discussion and one called History on Fire, in which I talk about history in the most uh, Game of Thrones type of way possible, just kind of try to bring up, you know, put the accent on the passion, larger than life characters, you know, make history come to life in a way that you can relate to as if you are watching a movie as opposed to sort of your classic high school lecture. And then, uh, and last, I, I write books. I've written four books so far. And I plan on writing more in the future. Why did you call it uh, the drunken Taoist? Is it like the drunken master, the old Jackie Chan? Along those lines, right? Where there's that, uh, you know, the short answers would be I like wine and I like Taoism. But no, in a more philosophically inclined version, I guess it would be, you know, exactly what you said. Like in the classic Kung Fu movies, you see the old guy who drinks a lot and nobody thinks any of anything of him but he has something that nobody can quite figure out how he managed to do the stuff he does that was kind of the vibe of the drunken tao is just very unorthodox very with a lot of there's a power there but it's a power of the unorthodox so so what is uh, taoism really i mean how different is it from from buddhism the thing that i dig about taoism is that it tends to emphasize some universal principles that are that don't require for anybody to believe in them, don't require faith, that they are kind of just telling you how the, the way the universe works. And so some people will read some Taoist thing and be like, wait, that means I'm a Taoist, I guess, because I already think those things. And that's kind of normal in the sense that it's just about recognizing certain basic essence of which the universe is built on uh, natural laws and things that um, like for example the whole yin yang idea the whole uh, mixing of uh, light and dark mixing of the opposites that's really you know in pretty much anything you're going to look at you're going to find an application of the yin yang principle in action so i dig taoism because it doesn't require you to be a taoist to actually be a taoist in, if that doesn't sound too paradoxical 
and that's one of the things I like about it. What can you say in your life where it's like helped you? Taoism, I would say pretty much anything because um, like one of the things that Taoism is big on is uh, non-opposition of force. They say, you know, everybody understand the yang energy, the light side of the circle that's more aggressive, it's more assertive. There's an obvious power there, but it's also a power that uh, takes a lot of energy. The yin is more subtle. And so, for example, a yin approach to things is rather than being a discussion in which you are trying to yell over somebody's head, somebody else to get your point across, which would be a more yang approach. The yin approach is a more subtle one that try to reframe the conversation from a zero-sum game where one of us will win and one of us will lose into a discussion more about how can we both walk out of this situation get what we want? How can we both walk out of here feeling happy? Which obviously works great in conversations with loved ones where getting into an all-out fight when there's a difference of opinions may not be the best course of actions. So that's just one example. Do you think there is good in everybody, even the worst uh, people? Well, um, at some point it becomes a philosophical question because maybe there is, but it's buried so deep that it's never going to come out. So it Is it that it's there and has by now been squashed and you will never see the light? Is it that it was never there to begin with? I'm not entirely sure. But I tend to think that, yes, things are not that black and white. Where take the worst human being in the world, they do two or three things right once in a while. You know, I'm sure Hitler was nice to his dog or something. You know what I mean? It's like take the worst person ever and you still, there are going to be little pieces of humanity where you can see that person in the one context and they don't they don't seem that bad, where there is something that you can have in common with them. I think one of the most disturbing pictures I've ever seen was a picture of Hitler uh, walking hand in hand with a little girl down the street. I guess it was a relative of his or something. And it seems so human and normal. And then you know that this is a guy who's done horrible things on the Holocaust and everything. And it's not that the fact that he could be nice to some little girl one day denies the horror that he unleashed in other ways. But it does put it in perspective that even monsters usually are not monsters 24-7. But maybe also it's relative uh, from his perspective. He was doing good. I always think about, I watched this documentary, this interview of this famous serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer who, I don't know, seven, eight people he, he killed, and he also was a cannibal, so he, he ate them. And he said that uh, he was also homosexual, and he said that these, these men that he killed and ate, he did it because he loved them so much that he wanted them to be with one with him, so he ate them. So from his perspective, I mean, he, I'm sure he knew he was doing something wrong because he was trying to hide from the police, but... He wasn't doing it out of uh, evil or from, I mean, he was loving, he, he was in love with these people. Well, and I think that's where there are different degrees because <clears throat> like, for example, I've been uh, years back, I was in the visiting room on death row on San Quentin. So everybody there has been accused of some pretty nasty, actually just not just been accused of being convicted of some pretty nasty murders and stuff like that. And, you know, the majority of the people were 
probably they are the kind of person who put a bullet in your head if you cross them and if uh, it's in their interest to get what they want. But they are not necessarily the ultimate evil guy that you picture. But then there are also those guys. Like I remember seeing this one guy who was just staring at me at one point. And that guy just really gave just chills down my spine. I felt like, okay, this is on a whole other level. Even compared to everyone else in this room, this guy is in a category all of his own. So I asked somebody, I'm like, who's that guy? What's with him? And he said, oh, that guy, yeah, um, that's uh, Richard Ramirez, was uh, the Night Stalker, one of the most famous uh, serial killers in California history. And the difference there was that whereas somebody else may be a caveman that's going to shoot you because you have something they want, but he's not getting off on pain. He's just, you know, killing you is a mean to an end. For a guy like Ramirez, killing you is the end. He's that somebody who derives pleasure from inflicting pain on other people. And so that you feel that's a whole other thing that there is a degree of evil there that's unlike what you get around most other human beings do you have any spiritual beliefs like do you have do you have a a view of like the afterlife or god or whatever you want to call it it has many names i guess it's complicated because uh, inevitably when it comes to these things the best that any human can do is have uh, tiny glimpses of something, but of course we're not relying on any kind of solid evidence or solid proof. I do feel and have experienced stuff that does not make that much sense according to our current model of how reality works. I do feel that there's more to life than just the material existence that we can recognize in three dimensions around us. What that means, I don't know. I don't know exactly... Um, so I, I sort of have a agnostic with an asterisk kind of position. You know, I do feel that there's something out there that's that is not being explained by our current understanding of science. That there may there may be more to it. I've always taken the position that if you live your life as a complete atheist, uh, or if you live your life believing something happens after you die. You will always win if you believe, if you live the life of believing, because if nothing happens, if the atheist is correct, you won't know. But if the atheist, if you're living as an atheist and you're wrong, then it will be worse in a sense because, oh, I I wasted my whole life. (laughs) That's why I guess I don't trust any belief about any of this stuff. You know, whether it's belief in... uh, from a religious standpoint, or even an atheist belief, which is also a belief, because is I know what the nature of reality is, and it's this, there's nothing. I find it, I find a wanting to come to a solid conclusion where the evidence, of course, is not solid and is not that strong. It's a little desperate. It's like we're trying to uh, fill in the blanks, despite the fact that at the end of the day it is a mystery, and any effort to make it otherwise is um, seems a bit misguided. What topics have your books been about? I did um, one couple of books. Well, I guess let's start with the, my first book on the Warrior's Path was primarily about philosophy and martial arts, and kind of applications of uh, martial arts idea into daily life. 
Then I did a couple of books about uh, religions, specifically how we as individuals should sort of look at what all the different religious answers that are out there, or, or if you don't like the word religions, even philosophies, I'm not really differentiating that much between one and the other. Take what make the most sense to you that seem to deliver the best result, that seem to deliver, to lead you to the happiest possible life, Leave behind the stuff that doesn't make sense to you, that seems that is just part of a dogma that is passed on, but it doesn't seem to lead anywhere good in your reality. And in that process, figure out how you want to live. You know, in that sense, taking an active approach to rather than you believe in this or not, have an approach that's about what ideas, what thoughts, what conclusions help me create a better life and what don't. So let's go dig for all the stuff that does help me create a better life and let's be free from all the stuff that doesn't. So that was a couple of books on that. And then my latest book called Not Afraid is uh, starts with martial arts, but this is much more of a personal thing. Like the whole idea is, uh, it's really about facing fear and dealing with fear in daily life. And I only use the martial art example in the first section because that's one of the places where I started training myself to deal with it. But then really the book takes more of a direction of how how those lessons were useful to me in day-to-day life when major horrible things happen and how I could uh, try to figure out a way to face them. Why is it that always, I mean, martial arts, it is... Um, you're training so you can do violence, but martial arts is all, always being so non-violent. <laughs> I mean, it's like a contradiction always. Compared to, you know, any other warrior technique, martial arts has always been focused on this passiveness somehow. Yeah, because I mean, I guess the idea to me is uh, if we are at the heart of martial arts is dealing with conflict. In conflict, you know, physical conflict is just the most dramatic manifestation of conflict, but conflict is in everything. Anybody who's alive will experience conflict between their desires and reality. So learning how to deal with it, learning how to face conflict, learning how to respond when when reality doesn't cater to your needs is an important skill for anybody. And the beautiful thing about the martial arts is that it's hard to lie to yourself because the evidence of what's working and what's not is very much in front of your eyes. So I find it kind of therapeutic in teaching people how to um, how to approach conflict, how to deal with it. When I was a teenager, I studied Aikido. And uh, after two years, we've, you know, the teachers learned... Uh, after like two years, the teacher showed us many different techniques and we practiced them. And then we were fortunate to have a, a, a master from Japan come and visit our dojo. And uh, he was a very old man and he was completely amazing. And I, I asked him that, you know, like the first move I ever learned was getting out of a uh, somebody holding my wrist and just turning and get, getting out of it. And I asked him, like, in Japan, how, for how long do you practice that? And he, he said, like, two years. And I was like, I actually quit after that because I got so disappointed because I, I, 
you know, I, I've done in, in my country in two years what they do in Japan in 10 years. And I felt like, oh, this is sloppy. Right. Yeah, and in fact, that's one of the things that's interesting about martial arts is that each one has their own methodology, each one has their own. I personally like them all. You know, I find that there's something really interesting. Is It's like learning different languages. Each one has their own unique way of expressing. Uh, of course, because you don't have the time for all of them, there's uh, you need to make choices. And in my particular case, I tend to dig uh, combat sports just because... Uh, I like the lack of ambiguity in combat sports. You know, whether the stuff you are doing, it's either working or it's not. There's nothing in between, you know. If you have some somebody who's trying to impose their game on you, the way you respond, you're going to find out real quick whether it works or it doesn't. And uh, I find that type of honest feedback very pleasant because it doesn't allow my mind to constantly wonder about the what if it's very real in that sense and uh, i enjoy the kind of honesty that it forces me to have with myself uh, i have like a 10 year old baby and i heard uh, recently you were talking on your podcast about the importance of uh, good parenting of course and you ha- you i know you have a, a daughter as well and how would you know, yours is a bit older than mine, so I'm sure you have more experience. But these simple things I've been a bit worried about, like how how do you deal with when they suffer conflict in their society? I mean, you can protect them in your house, but you have to let them go at some point to be alone out in society and they encounter conflict. I mean, it's very difficult. How do you train your daughter to like, how to manage that? I think, I think you know, the best you can do as a human being is share your experience, what has worked for you, what hasn't worked for you, and, you know, see if uh, what has worked for you can apply, also that what hasn't worked for you can serve as a lesson or not. You know, in, in many cases it can, because, you know, you can probably have acquired a lot of experience that somebody else who's also a human being will be able to relate to. Some cases they'll be different. But yeah, ultimately, the best you can do as a parent is give your kid the tools to try to develop their personality, to try to be able to handle whatever life throws at them. Because, of course, they are not going to have the exact same life you have had. So even if they were able to absorb every last little bit of your experience, there will still be things that they are going to face that are different. And as such, it's... uh, you're more trying to build the character than just teach some specific things about you do this in this situation. You know, I mean, those are helpful. That's great and all. But you also need to just build character in general so as to, and trust that that developed personality will be able to handle what comes their way. And I think really being honest with where we struggle, what works for us, what doesn't, sharing our own conflicts and explaining how I deal with certain conflicts or another, I think that's also that always useful. It's always useful because it allows another human being to be able to tap a little bit into your experience and see, um, at least vicariously, get a little bit of second-hand experience through you. My upbringing has made me, I'm very free in, in mind and, uh, you know, 
relatively fearless and uh, I'm uh, you know confident so I want my child to you know have those traits as well I mean so sh- she can do whatever she wants or be whatever she wants you know I'm not going to tell her to be a doctor or anything like that but I'm also thinking like yeah but looking back at my own life when you're really free in your mind you are the insane person in society often and it's also brought a lot of like conflict my way because it is much better to be just you know a sheep and just follow the herd seems easier looking at those people you know sometimes i wonder should i have not read so many books you know i mean it's one of the things being alive is hard work being alive and those are ways what you're referring to as kind of the sheep mentality is people who kind of go through the motion they stay alive by inertia not because there's actually a real full-blooded human being there who's actually feeling and thinking to the same degree it's it's a way to hide in life. And if you're not built that way, if your personality doesn't allow you to just, you know, do some mindless job that you don't care about, come home, watch TV, go to sleep, repeat the next day, but you do have a little more substance, um, you are going to run into more trouble. There's no doubt about it. You know, you're first and foremost, because you're going to feel things more because, you know, not everybody has the same degree of sensitivity. Somebody who's more sensitive is going to hurt more, plain and simple. He's also going to probably have access to a much higher degree of happiness, but they're going to feel everything more, the good stuff, the bad stuff. And so I don't even know if it's a choice because I think that at some point you either have it or you don't. Of course, it can be cultivated or it can be numbed, but I think that quality is um, it's something that, in some cases, you may not have that much of a choice if you feel that way so strongly from day one, if you have this kind of hypersensitivity. Are you aware of this book? I can't remember the author. It was called The, the Culture of Fear. No, I don't remember it. It's quite old. It's, it has probably a decade now. But you said you wrote a book about dealing with fear. But this book, anyway, uh, says that our culture is basically built on fear, like everything with you know the media and many traditions like even even funerals are all the rituals are based on some sort of fear like we're living in this fear culture and uh, uh, i haven't read your book about fear but uh, it's uh, have you noticed this yeah i mean it's fear cells because everybody wants to we all crave safety we all crave uh nobody wants to rush head first toward uh, death so fear is something that we are built for because in some cases fear has been serving as evolutionary you know fear has been the kind of stuff that has helped us avoid uh, experiences that could lead us to have a short life and die miserably without passing on our genes to the next generation but then of course there's also another side of fear where fear becomes uh, um, something that inhibit us you know it stops us from actually living fully because we're constantly in this uh what what could get me next type of mentality and the fact is you know like if you look at news media they are built on that right because they know that people respond to fear they know that if they tell you after the commercial break more news about this deadly disease that's coming to your town you know everybody will tune in for that it's like what can i do to avoid it what can 
that's kind of normal. It's an easy button to push in human beings, the fear button. Politicians do that very well because they know that usually if you can have some kind of uh, boogeyman out there that scares everybody, people are more likely to follow you and listen to whatever you say. News media does it very well in terms of making sure that you sit through the commercial to watch the next clip. Humans respond to fear, and many people know how to manipulate that human interest in fear uh, very well. Your history podcast that you do, is there any part of history that fascinates you more than any other, or is it just, just general? I think I'm interested in the human experience in general, but then, of course, there are It's not so much that I say that one time period interests me more. There are stories or characters that interest me in many different parts of history. Now, maybe it's not that I say, okay, the 1600 in Italy, that's what I care about. It's more about the one story of the one guy during the 1600s in Italy interests me a lot. And so I'll study that. And then there will be a different story about a different time and place where I'm really intrigued with that particular tale. So I'm not so much of a specialist. I kind of just go looking for little gold nuggets wherever I find them, in, even in the midst of maybe historical periods that I'm less interested than in others. Were you very young when you left Italy? I was 18. Actually, recently read a lot about the Roman Empire for some reason, and... Uh... I mean, I've been to Italy, but, you know, it's different when you actually are an Italian and you're growing up there. Is is there any, like, Roman Empire echoing in the society still? I mean, as far as, uh, you know, general heritage, of course, you know, there's so much of Italy so ancient that there's plenty of stuff that's when you have a culture that's thousands of years old. Yeah, you do have it all. and. You do have all the historical monuments and scenes of where this took place in this spot, that kind of stuff. And I think in some way, probably some of the dynamics of the culture, they are, you know, Roman history was clearly a huge chunk of the culture of that nation. And so it inevitably it affects to one degree or another somehow. I mean, even the references, even the history, if you look at things like, a lot of people try to regularly kind of bring back some of the Roman past to life, whether in values or ideas or things like even symbols, things like that. So it's like you read Italian newspaper and a ton of the time there will be references, very kind of weird references that, you know, somebody else who didn't grow up in the culture may not pick up on. But there are references to uh, Latin historians who wrote about that topic, and it would be just thrown there in the middle of the news like everybody's supposed to know about them. So there is kind of a degree of uh, knowledge of that topic that permeates society to this day. Like Berlusconi is was some kind of Caesar in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they always use those kind of, like those type of metaphors are used all the time in news, in political discourse and everything else. But what I always thought was weird was that when you look at paintings or, you know, from the Roman Empire, I mean, they don't look like Italians, like the way Italians look these days. I mean, I'm not talking clothes and that, but like the fa face, I mean, they don't look Italian, I don't think. I mean, the thing that's funny about, the, um, you know, we have this idea of uh, ethnicity 
that's completely misguided because our idea of ethnicity is based on an extremely short-lived time frame. You know, look at, I mean, we can do this for Italy since we're talking about it, but for any country, really. You know, if you look at what exactly makes an Italian, so you have these uh, Celtic people way back in the day, who mix from people from the Middle East. There's a lot of evidence that Etruscan culture may have originated in areas like Turkey. And then you then you get um, Spaniards coming in, French coming in. You have uh, invasions of a variety of Eastern tribes, Germanic tribes over a period of centuries. You have the Latins, you have Arabs invading Sicily, you had the Greeks who invaded Sicily. You had, you know, the reality is that there's a mix of genes that happens over the century. So there is no one Italian, quote unquote. You know, it's, there are people from half of the world coming through and leaving their genes behind. So we have this idea that there is a Italian type or a German type or a whatever type. The reality is that we are all a mix of 10,000 different things. In some cases, the mix can be very recent. In some cases, it's buried a little bit more into the past. But there is no such thing as one ethnicity that remained the same through time without ever changing. We're constantly changing. Which makes racism extra stupid. Yeah, makes racism completely dumb from a historical perspective because there really is no such a thing as race. That is what it is, right? It is race is a completely lull. I mean, even if you do the math, you know, every one of us has two parents, four grandparents, eight great grandparents, and you know, you exponentially grow. If you go back maybe about a thousand years, every one of us has about a million people who are our direct ancestors. What are the odds that every one of those million people come from the same ethnic group? None, absolutely none, you know. There's inevitably, there's a mix there in every single person out there. Unless you're from Iceland, because Iceland is, I've read, one of the purest countries in the world as far as race goes. <laughs> you're in some isolated pocket in the mountains somewhere where, but you know, that's very rare and also probably bad things would have happened there just because lack of genetic diversity will not do good things to a population over time. Do you have any plans for any future books? Yeah, I don't really want to. I think I'm done. All my books so far has been, they've been nonfiction. I think I'm done with that. I want to start writing novels, fiction. And so that's, uh, that's where I'm heading next. I imagine there will be some martial arts in those i think the first thing i want to do is um in my history podcast um i cover a bunch of topics one of them i did a series about italian painter caravaggio his life was so crazy so wild so bizarre uh i think it would be a lot of fun to do a historical novel about him can you say a little bit about him because i'm not so familiar who he is caravaggio was um He was at the end of the 1500s into the early 1600s. He became the most important uh, painter of his era. And probably, I mean, in my opinion, he's probably the most important painter, period, just bar no one. And what's interesting about him is that on one hand, he was painting these amazing masterpieces. And on the other hand, he was pretty much a gangster. You know, the way I frame it in the podcast, I say, imagine somebody like Tupac, who rather than being a rapper in the 1990s, was, uh, if he was an Italian painter in the 1600s, he would be Caravaggio. 
you know, the Caravaggio story is a story that's monstrously reminiscent of uh, the culture of rap in the late 1900s. It's a story of uh, street fights, gangs, uh, murder, escaping from jail, you know, all sort of weird criminal activity. And on the other hand, the most amazing art of the late Renaissance. And the two sides live hand in hand. Yeah, because painting is not really like the most macho thing, I imagine, like if you... Right, whereas the guy was regularly, you know, he would be this amazing painter and he would regularly go around with his swords, get into fights. At one point he killed the guy in a duel, had to flee Rome. He had the price on his head. They, he got captured, thrown in jail, escaped from jail. You know, his whole life was just nuts, you know, really high-intensity action. And then he would just sit down and do his paintings and... And his paintings kind of reflected this because they were so, like, he does not paint like any other painter. There's a certain degree of passion, even violent passion in what he does that just jump out of the canvas. I had an idea the other day. I was <clears throat> I was thinking that what if you brought the jewel back uh, and you always have the option if somebody challenges you to decline, but then you know you can you're a coward but i mean maybe you all conflicts in society could be solved with a jewel instead seriously i'm a big fan of that idea my have uh, and also even worse it's like why do you have to bomb a civilian population or get millions of people just get whoever want to fight from each side get them in a stadium with an axe and then you know no civilians need to be caught in the crossfire Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of, because uh, I mean, most wars, the reality most wars even is that most people, most people who die are civilians, who have nothing to do with the actual fighting, but they get caught in between. And that's a really stupid way to to do business. It's like, if you're going to have a war, just have the people who want to go at it in a place away from everybody. Yeah, like in, there's also like a thousand years ago and even before that, when there was a war, the the leader or the president of those days always at the front line often not always but for many times absolutely even like without even going back that far like if i look at a guy like theodore roosevelt who was president at the very beginning of the 1900s in us the guy just was perfectly happy dropping everything and going to fight in the front line when he had a government job shortly became he became president you know it was to him he was yeah that's what you do that's you lead from the front the current time you know like probably putin would do well in such a situation but most leaders would not i don't think <laughs> well then again who knows because you know one thing maybe he would hard to tell because of course you know it's definitely easier to play that character who knows whether you actually want to be the character when the bullets are flying but yeah maybe could very well be Um, that he could play it perfectly. But yes, um, <clears throat> generally most people are perfectly happy clamoring for war as long as it's somebody else fighting the war for them. So this podcast thing you're doing, was that like a hobby or is that taking over more than your normal job? I mean, it's not more, but it's definitely growing in importance. It's it's a big chunk of what I do. Um Ideally, in fact, I would like to scale down a little bit more on the teaching in the classroom, not because I don't enjoy it, but I've done it for 15 years and it takes a lot of time. 
And the problem is I can work like a dog on putting together something that 50 people will be exposed to, or I can work like a dog putting something together that 100,000 people will be exposed to. You know, it's not that it's different because the personal face-to-face interaction, there's something unique about it, but there's also something cool about the podcasting model. So I'm I'm enjoying both. I would, in the best possible world, I would like to shift it to being a little bit more podcasting and a little bit face-to-face teaching. Do you think this all this independent media with podcasting and YouTube uh, is gonna completely take over? I mean, I, I I hardly ever watch normal news anymore. <laughs> I get everything from alternative sources. I only watch the normal news just to see what 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 storyline they're on. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's already happening because when you look at it, the you know, back when when I was growing up, not a million years ago, when I was growing up, you know, most everybody would read the newspaper. Today, I can't think of too many people who read the newspaper. You know, it's one of the things where traditional forms of media are clearly disappearing or having to change. Um, there's no argument about it. So uh, if people want to check out your books or your podcasts, what are all the, the websites? Um, I think... By now, thanks to the age of internet, anybody can find anything they want. So the easiest thing is probably just type my name in Google. It's uh, Daniel with an E at the end, so Daniele, D-A-N-I-E-L-E, and my last name, Bolelli, B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And it won't take, you know, the gods of Google will be good to you and they will reveal Anything you want to know, books, podcasts, all the different things I do will be out there in the first couple of pages of Google. Yeah, and I'll also post some links in the program notes if people are too lazy to Google, they can click. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Cool. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to uh, talk to me. Of course. My pleasure. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. Check out his website, daniellebolelli.com or his podcasts, The Drunken Taoist and History on Fire. And Danielle mentioned that you can easily find him using Google, but recently I found a much better alternative to Google called Ecosia, where you can plant trees while you search the web. Ecosia is a search engine that plants trees with its ad revenue. Go to ecosia.org, that's E-C-O-S-I-A dot org. I haven't had time to try it that much yet, but it seems to do pretty good searches. And you can also get a clear statistics on how many trees you've planted. And so far I've planted two trees, but then again I've only used it for about an hour max. So I think that's pretty good. Um, Now we're going to listen to a song called God Hope from the album Welcome Home by 13 Inlet. And uh, you can go to 13inlet.com if you want to check out their music. That's 13 as in the number, not the words. Uh, I'll post all the relevant links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com as usual. And don't forget to like the Facebook page and uh, follow the podcast on Twitter. Next week we are going to learn a bit about the Corpus Hermeticum. So stay tuned for that. Freedom is in the mind. They can't take this away, away from me. It's something.
Can't steal. 